Got your Bibles? I hope you do. Let's turn to the book of Isaiah. We're going to be in chapter 54. You know, there's there's nothing, I, I say this, I'm sure this, we could come up with some other things, but there's nothing more heart-wrenching for a married couple than to be unable to have children, who want children. Now, there are many couples who, who God has given them the gift of not wanting children because they, God wants them to focus on ministry. There's nothing wrong with that. But throughout Scripture, God instructs us from the beginning, He tells Adam and Eve to be fruitful and multiply. Now, granted, some people have multiplied more than others. The Green family, and Richard will say that's one of the things he took serious, that God told him to be fruitful and multiply, so they had lots of kids. But the idea is that we, God instructs us to do that. Now, Beth and I struggled for years to, to start a family. And when it was determined that we would not be able to have a family biologically, well, we, we went to the next obvious step, which would be to turn to adoption, which for me is an amazing picture of Christ adopting us into his family as Gentiles. But even... The adoption process has huge struggles. It's a long process filled with much administrative paperwork and seemingly endless insurmountable problems and log jams. Sometimes you think you're going to adopt a child and that adoption doesn't happen, which happened to us. So that feeling of not being able to have children came crashing down upon us again. Now, obviously, we... Waited another year and we're blessed greatly with Caleb. And two more years later, we're blessed greatly with Abigail. I keep telling myself that. I, I believe that. I believe it. We are truly, truly blessed. But in the midst of that, in the midst of that time, it's extremely difficult. We, it's so easy for us to get discouraged. I, and, I, and I'm afraid that today in this world, it's so easy for us to get discouraged with what's going on in this world. Because now a lot of times we can't see past our disappointments. We, we, we look at our current situation, we get so wrapped up in it, we don't see the joy that should be part of what we are experiencing. So this is why we have this command from God in Isaiah 54. The first beginning of verse 1. And here's what he says. He says, Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. Now, I'm sure there are many women who say, I'm glad I haven't been in labor, because it's an arduous process. But God is telling us that in the midst of our sorrow, we are to explode with joyful song. But our normal human tendency is to resist it. We, we don't want to break out in song in the midst of our troubles. We want to wallow in. We, we want people to have sympathy for us. We want to feel sorry for ourselves because it's difficult. But we have to understand that when we resist God's order, His, His order for us to, to worship and to break out in song in our times of trouble, we are disobeying a direct command. In our pride, we hold back this exuberant praise of God. And what a great picture of what, who God is when we say that in the midst of our troubles, I can still worship God with joy. When Jesus was entering Jerusalem on the Sunday 
before Passover, his disciples are on the road before him and they're seeking out, Hosanna, Hosanna, great, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And the Pharisees are not too happy about it. Because they're saying, blessed is the king who comes by peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And what the Pharisees do, they tell Jesus, stop your men from doing this. This is wrong. And he tells them, if they stop, the very rocks will cry out. See, I think at times we're afraid in our, in our times of sorrow, we're afraid to have this enthusiastic part of praise because we sometimes associate enthusiasm in worship with loss of control. You've seen it. That some of the crazy things that some people do in their, uh, their, their desire for the Spirit, which may be, be, be fine, they have that desire, but they allow it to go places it shouldn't go. That don't fit into what Scripture says is correct as far as worship goes. So what we do, we remain stoic. But we must be careful that we don't cause the rocks to cry out. John Calvin understood this. And listen to his logic. He says, the church is a place where the gospel is preached. Okay, makes sense. Gospel is good news. Yep. The good news makes people happy. I sure hope it does. Happy people sing. But then, two, unhappy people may sing to cheer themselves up. See, as followers of Christ, we need to be full of joy. I, I, I've talked about this in other sermons before. We need to be filled with joy. People, the world needs to see that even though it seems like the world is falling apart around us, we still need to be joyful. See, the test of our faith as a church is not just in the words or our creeds or our theology, but it's also in the joy of our worship. See, you and I, if you're a believer in Christ, you are no longer condemned to hell. I know, there's this crazy idea out there now that there's no hell. Satan decided to take it one step further. When he started to convince people that he didn't exist, that was his first coup de grace. Now his, the next one is, there's no hell. Isaiah 53 shows us this, that we will inherit all the blessings of God and nothing can stand between us and God. And he's going to restore us through Christ into a right relationship with him. And this reversal of our fortunes in Christ, what it should do, it should bring a smile to our lips. In the midst of our trials, we should always remember, but yeah, but at least I got Christ and I'm redeemed and I don't have to worry about hell anymore. And that should bring a smile to our lips. We should chuckle to ourselves. I would love, I would love for us as Christians to be in public and hear, hear chuckling all the time about the fact that we're saved, and people looking at us like we're weird. <laughs> yeah, they do. Yeah, and then be able to say, "They're like, why are you laughing? Because I found the joy in Christ. I have nothing to worry about. No fear. Nothing." But see, it. it we're going to see this surprising reversal in the last second part of 54.1. It says, for the, and this is the reason why we need to break into song. It says, for the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. 
What, a, what an awesome promise. The woman who's barren, the woman who has no children. And he's talking about Israel. Because Israel, and we'll talk about it, Israel has done the wrong thing, and they, they will have no children, but ultimately they will have children. They will have Israel will have children from every tribe, nation, and tongue. We'll talk about that in a moment. They're going to have children. It's going to be more than they had before. God's going to do an amazing change. We've talked about the city of Zion. It's spiritually barren. Israel was spiritually barren. Many churches today, I think, are spiritually barren. They, they need to be re- renovated. They've allowed the world to come in, and, and they shouldn't have. It needs to be, things need to change. Our own denomination is guilty of that at times. Israel has squandered their birthright. They were chosen by God, and they squandered it. God chose to put his name on that city. Israel was to be a priest to the surrounding nations, they were to the people were to look at Israel and say, so that's what it, that's what it's like to to be part of God's family. That's what it's like to be chosen by God. I wish we were chosen by God, but what happens? Israel doesn't do that. They were to lead people, the other nations, back to God. Instead, they don't. God had planned for them to reverse. The results of the Tower of Babel. But because of their sin and because of their idolatry, what did they do? They squandered it. They squandered their spiritual blessing. And you see that over and over throughout the Old Testament. That they're not doing what they're supposed to do and, God, and they, they, they repent and, and you think they're going to do it right and what happens? They do it again. Over and over and over again. And God knew that was going to happen. That's why he planned from the start for Christ to come. He knew it was going to take a a sacrifice of his son to redeem this world. So instead of being a light to the nations, the nations that surrounded them had corrupted Israel, leaving her spiritually barren. Hence, verse 1. God was going to do something very unexpected. Now that Christ has come, Now that he has died and he has risen, that barrenness of Israel, that spiritual barrenness of the lineage of Abraham is going to bear spiritual children for the living God. And that's something to sing about and to celebrate. Furthermore, because of that, we need to change some things. And this is what it says in verse 2. It says, enlarge the place of your tent. You need a bigger tent. And let the curtains of your your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. Now, if you're just a couple with, you know, no children, the amount of space you need is pretty limited. You You could survive in a small apartment. You may not want to, but you could. But once you have a child, it changes greatly all of a sudden you need more room so you get a two-bedroom apartment (laughs) or you buy a small house with two bedrooms when we first got caleb we found that we needed things and our space of living started to fill up and while we we can get along with a two-bedroom home with one child as as we add another child it becomes kind of difficult especially when they're not both boys or both girls. I mean, it was it could be a while. I remember the day we moved Caleb over to his own room and had Abigail 
in, in the nursery area. I, I remember that. We grow. We need to expand. We need to get bigger. Now, the problem with, as I've determined, is the bigger you get the house, the more stuff you're going to fill it with. More clutter. I'm in a decluttering mode. It's difficult. It's partly because I'm going through a lot of my dad's stuff, and I don't want to throw his stuff away because it reminds me of my dad, you know. But it's okay. I'm not throwing any of it away, really, except for the stuff that was need to be thrown away. But sorting it, it's just. But we start to fill up our lives with this stuff. Now I want you to imagine if you had a million children, how big would your house need to be? Huge. And this is what happened in the first century. Millions of people, ultimately throughout the first century, will be added to the family of God. Now, some of the Jews didn't like it, and they resisted it, while others accepted their new brothers and sisters in God. But how big is it going to get? If it says here that enlarge your place to ten and let the curtains hold back, because you're going to have more children than you had originally... How big is it going to get? We need to go to the book of Revelation to see how big our family is as believers. It says in Revelation 7 9, it says, After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number. I'm pretty good at counting and keeping track of counting. I would struggle to count the number of people. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. Now I want you to think about this. Missiologists, these are people who are missionaries who do, they actually will, they study the idea of missions and they track the, the information. They estimate that there are probably between 550 and 750 million people in the world today who know that they need to be born again. Okay, these are people who are either born again or they actually have realized, they're beginning to realize they need to be born again and trust in Christ. They understand the gospel of justification in faith alone by Christ alone. 550 to 750 million. Now, first of all, that number seems large until you figure out how many people there are in the world. How many people are in the world? Anybody have any idea? 7 billion, roughly? Only 550, 750 million know that they need God. That's a lot of people, but sad when you think about it from the other perspective. So now we know that even all of those people, 550, 750 million, will, will, not, will not go there, will not ultimately accept Christ, will not ultimately become part of the family. But even so, a high percentage of them will. So we have between a half a billion and three quarters of a billion. That's a lot of people. Now think about that in the number of people standing before the throne. Think about trying to get that many people in this room waiting at the door to come in. And that's only those who are alive today. What about all those that have died before us in Christ? Waiting for the resurrection. Jerusalem, the city of Zion in its current size, would not be able to hold them. It's not big enough. It's time to move the tent post and make it bigger. Because what is happening is the displaced nations are going to come in. This is from Isaiah 54 3. It says, For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and and will people the desolate 
cities. Now, we know that Israel returned to the land during the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, but they never really disposed the people. They never kicked the people out. The people that were there were still there. It wasn't... It was kind of happening, but it wasn't happening physically. So this is one of the reasons that Nehemiah and the people are going to endure a lot of persecution as they're trying to rebuild the walls. They, it's interesting because if you read Nehemiah, and I suggest you do, they had a, a hammer or whatever their tool was to rebuild their walls. In one hand, they had a sword in the other hand because they knew they were going to get attacked because people didn't want them there any more than they want them there today. But over time, Israel didn't displace the nations at that point in time. They settled in with them. Now, we, we can see this happening spiritually over time in the early church. As, as Paul went out, the apostles went out, and they started, start, started building churches and cities, and you had Greeks, you had Romans, you had, you had people from North Africa, you had people from e- Egypt, you had people from all over that were becoming believers in Christ, and they were from all the different nations, and all of a sudden now you're displacing the nations. They're no longer pagan. Even Paul talks about how even in in Caesar's household, there were people who became Christian. People who believed. The seeds of the gospel were planted in every province, in every country. Spiritually, this was an attack on the satanic ideologies of the false gods. This is an attack on Satan's kingdom. And while we are still aliens and strangers in this world, the new heaven and the new earth is ours to inherit. It's going to displace all the nations. But until that day, see, if you don't, if you don't, if you don't assimilate yourself into the nations, you become travelers. You become, I'll say it, you become like gypsies. You're not setting up permanent residence. You're living in a tent. We are not. We are not living in this. We're living in this world. We're not in this. We're not part of this world. We're in this world. We are to be living in tents. We're t- the where not literally, especially not in the winter time. Though I have seen some pretty cool tents that have furnaces and pretty cool. But needless to say, that's a sidetrack. Where this is a temporary place for us. We're looking forward to that new city that's coming, where it's going to be filled and it's going to displace everything that's here. We travel lightly, not burdening ourselves with the trappings of this world. It's one reason why Scripture tells us that if, if you have love of the world in you, you don't have the love of God in you. We can't love this world. Now, we, we can use it. We can take advantage of the blessings that God gives us in this world. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is you can't make that be your main focus because this is temporary. There's going to be an end to the disgrace that the world places on Israel and places on us as believers. In verse 4, Isaiah 54 says, Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Isn't that great? I won't be ashamed. Now, it's not because I'm not going to be ashamed because I did everything perfectly. I'm not going to be ashamed because of Christ. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced, for you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood, and you will remember no more. You must understand that in ancient times it was it was it was very shameful if you were a married woman and a widow and had no children. In fact, the church is is ordered that if you if you have a woman who's a widow who's over the age of 60, 60 I believe. 
I have to look that up again. Sixty or sixty-five. She's over a certain age. You that the church is responsible for taking care of her, unless she has family. Then that family is supposed to take care of her. Younger than that, they tell tell you to get married if you're a widow. Even worse was when a married woman was sent away by her husband, divorced. Think of exile. Israel was divorced by God. Now he brought her back. He's going to bring her back even more so when the 144,000 go out to evangelize the world for the Jews in the world. Israel was sent away in disgrace because her husband sent her away. We saw back in chapter 1 of, of, Israel, of Isaiah that Israel had become a harlot. I mean, that's putting it nicely. She had prostituted herself to the other gods. She had prostituted herself to the other nations. She had prostituted herself to the Benai Elohim who had fallen, the sons of God who had fallen. They had corrupted their very souls. That's one reason why we have to be careful. We, we, don't want to, we don't want to give ourselves over to the world and to the things of this world. It'll corrupt us. It'll destroy us. Now Christ has come. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins. We, have, we become overcomers. In fact, more than overcomers. We're more than overcomers. We're children of God. He shed his blood for the forgiveness of our sins, and the time of disgrace is over. Now, we all know, you know, unless your heart has been hardened so much, when we sin, we know there's disgrace. We feel it. I probably shouldn't have done that. But if we trust in Christ, we can put that shame away. Because he took them all on the cross. Now, the, the world will attempt to shame us. But that's just their opinion. And it doesn't matter. The only opinion that matters is God himself. And as we saw in the last chapter, we have been made righteous by the blood of Jesus Christ. When once we were rejected, now we're restored. Verse 5. For your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth is he is called, for the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth when she is cast off, says your God. For a brief moment I deserted you, but with great compassion I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment I hid my face from you, but with everlasting love I will have compassion on you, says the Lord your Redeemer. This is like the days of Noah to me. As I swore that the waters of Noah would no more go over the earth, so I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. What a beautiful section of Scripture. There's some amazing names in here, and that's really what I want to focus on with these in these verses. These names that Isaiah gives us for God. Each of them represents how God works in our lives. The first one is Maker. He is our Maker. 
Uh, in Psalm 139, 13 through 40, it says, For you formed my inward parts, you knitted me together in my mother's womb. I praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works, my soul knows it very well. We know God's works are amazing. I could spend hours talking about the human body and nature and how things work. I've just I've been discovering some new things about how our bodies work, dealing with our metabolism, our metabolic, and it's just it's phenomenal. There's no way that happened by chance. It had to have a creator. But he knows us, he formed us, he is our maker. He is our husband. This is the next one. This image of, of the church as the bride of Christ is so powerful. Every Christian marriage is a picture of Christ in the church. That's why Paul tells the church at Ephesus, he says, Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word, so that we might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. That right there, that verse tells us why Adam was cursed along with Eve. Because Adam's responsibility was to protect his wife, and he failed. Men, we need to protect our wives. Yes, some of our wives are really strong women. Some of our wives may scare us at times. <laughs> but you know what? We still need to protect them. Some of our wives can handle guns better than we can. You never know. <laughs> <laughs> but understand, we need to protect them. And guess what? The church is the bride of Christ. We need to protect the church. And I'm afraid we have failed. We have allowed the world into this, into, let's not say this church, I'm trying, into the church. Even our own denomination is struggling right now because we've allowed the world in. And I'm afraid of where it's going to go. Understand, we need to protect the bride. Next one is the Lord of hosts. This idea is a very much a military term. God is the commander of the heavenly army, and he is powerful. In Psalm 2410, it says, Who is the king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. As the Lord of hosts, God is this all-powerful ruler. He is the commander of the armies of God. All of the angels who are still 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 devoted to God. And that's a whole other story. We can if you want to know more about that, come to me. I'll tell you about it in scripture what it says. But the angels who are on God's side, the archangels, we think of Michael, think of Gabriel. God is the is the head of the army. He is the general. He's all powerful. He has all the power, all the authority. It is he alone who intervenes for his people. We talked about that last week, that, that Jesus actually intercedes for us. He alone who brings peace to the world. Hence why the Antichrist will attempt to bring a false peace. It will. It won't last. And yet, in the midst of that, in the midst of all the power that God has, in the midst of who he is, and his standing as the Lord of hosts, you know, he still hears our prayers. Lowly us, he still listens and hears your prayers. There's no other God like our God. As a t-shirt I want to buy, it says, Yahweh is Elohim, is an Elohim. He's a God. But there are no Elohim like Yahweh. 
There's no God like our God. The next one is a holy one of Israel. I talked about God. Jesus was the light of the world. God is light. 1 John 1, 5 says, This is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. He's pure. He hates wickedness. He hates sin. And that is why Israel was sent into exile, because of their sin. But praise be to God that you and I do not have to go into exile because we have Jesus Christ who paid the price for our sins. Because he's the redeemer. It's God who paid the price to buy us out of bondage. Colossians 1, 13, 14 says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sin. We have forgiveness because he's the redeemer. And in that he is the God of the whole earth. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The earth and and those who dwell therein. Everything belongs to God. You and I belong to God. Even those who do not trust him, do not believe in him, belong to God. Yahweh, God is not just some tribal deity. He's not Israel's little God. He is God of the whole earth. He sits enthroned above the earth. The earth is his footstool. The nations are like grasshoppers to him. Nothing more than just a drop in the bucket. And one day he's going to come, he's going to reclaim that kingdom. I think it's going to be sooner than we think. And he's going to purge it of all those who are against him. So he's made a permanent covenant. The love of Christ for us, the church, is is greater than all of creation. The covenant that he has made with us through Christ is greater than anything else in the world. Nothing can come against it. The mountains one day are going to be moved. They're going to be completely flattened. We read that in Revelation. We read that in the Old Testament, that the, the mountains will be leveled. The highest mountain in the world will be Zion. But God's love for us will never be removed. Isaiah 54 is the picture of a day that God's anger will be gone and will live as the bride of Christ in security and safety. That once what had been destroyed is now going to be beautiful and it's going to be secure. Let's look at verse 11. It says, O afflicted one, we feel that way sometimes, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and lay your foundation with sapphires. He's going, to, he's going to build things out of beautiful things. He's going to take something that was destroyed and make it beautiful. I will make your pinnacles of a gate and your gates of carbuncles and all your wall of precious stones. You know that all throughout history, Jerusalem has always been a city afflicted. Originally, it was the city of the Jebusites. And David overthrew it, so it was taken in conflict. And it's always been in conflict. It's, and, and people have always been coming, trying to, to take the city. Why? Why? What's this so big, the big deal about Jerusalem? It's a teeny tiny city. It really, uh, and as far as capitals goes, it's pretty small. And it's in a teeny tiny country about the size of New Jersey. Why is it such a big deal? It's because God's name's on it. And Satan wants to take it. But the day is coming when Jerusalem will not be afflicted anymore. We can see here in Isaiah a picture of what we're going to see in Revelation 21. 
Talking about the new heaven and the new earth that comes down, it says the wall was built of jasper while the city was pure gold like clear glass. The gold was so pure, it was you could see through it. I've never seen gold that pure. The foundations of the wall of the city were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first was jasper, the second sapphire, the third a gate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, the twelfth amethyst. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, each of the gates made of a single pearl. That's a pretty big clam to make a big pearl that big. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. That's what the city that we're going to live in. We live in tents now. Nothing in this world compares to what's coming. And the city is going to be secure. Isaiah says in verse 13, says, All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. We have weeks when we struggle, don't we? Don't shake your head no. We have weeks when we struggle, all families do, where the kids fight, right? Minutes, huh? Yeah. Guess what? The time is coming when they will be taught directly by the Lord, and there will be peace. God's word is true. It's going to happen. I'm looking forward to it. That's just the kids. Um, The adults, man, there's a whole other thing. We fight too. But there will be peace. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear and from terror, for it shall not come near you. Imagine the day where we will not have any fear. The last two years, three years, have been nothing but fear. And it still continues. And they're using it to control us. If you don't fear, they won't control you. But there will be no more need for it because the God will take care of it. There'll be no more fear. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. It's not from God. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall be, be shall fall because of you. There's, they may try to stir up strife. It ain't going to work. If, behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have also created the ravager to destroy. He has created both. He created the ravager who's going to destroy things before Christ comes back. He has created the the smith who created the weapon, which was Jesus Christ, the cross that redeems us. No weapon that's fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and your vindication from evil, declares the Lord. Now we know that today Jerusalem is far from secure. There are many nations who want to push them into the sea. And if we, the church, will one day inhabit the new Jerusalem, Satan has created a plethora of weapons to use against us while we're here in this world. He is in the church. I'll be honest with you, Satan is in the church. I've heard stories about, I mean, the Vatican and the problems there, but I want to tell you he's in in the Protestant churches too. He tries to attack from the outside, and now he's attacking from the inside. There's some real disturbing videos I've watched of things that are happening in churches, and I'm like, that's satanic. We must dodge his flaming arrows every day. Now, we know that his schemes to defeat Yahweh are going to fail. And that we're going to make it through this battle just fine. 
if we trust in Christ in the victory that he has over the evil one. We can't trust ourselves. But no weapon will prevail against us because we are more than conquerors. We are overcomers in all things through the power of the Holy Spirit and the blood of the Lamb. That's what Isaiah 54 is trying to show us. Now, before we take the Lord's Supper, I, I, I want us to think about Isaiah 53, what it showed us, that Jesus shed his blood to atone for our sins. And now chapter 4, 20, 54 talks about the glorious city where, where we're going to, the redeemed are going to live forever and, and where we don't have to worry, we won't have any fear, and no weapon formed against us shall, shall succeed. So we need to come into the city. We need to come into that city now. And we enter that city through the repentance and through faith in Jesus Christ. So today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to start living not in this world, not of this world, but in this world, but living in the new city. As believers, we need to trust God that he's going to do great things through living through this church, through living faith. We need to expect it. I think so many, so many times things don't happen because we don't expect it to happen. He's going to do some great things still. We need to expect it. Expect that God's going to continue to spread the gospel through this church and he give us new ways for us to share the gospel. We need to be bold. We need to take some risk. Don't rest on your laurels. Don't rest on the past. Look towards the future. We have a job to do until he comes back. Come Lord Jesus. We need to embrace joy that comes through being a child of God and the future resident of the new Jerusalem. Don't let your pride squelch your worship. Find joy in the midst of trials. Remember, you've been redeemed. You have every reason to be joyful even in the midst of trouble. We need to find security in the fact that no weapon formed against us will prosper. And we're going to face a lot of different weapons. The evil one throws at us. He's going to throw everything he has at us if we are truly followers of Christ. If you feel you're being attacked, it's probably because you're a believer. Now as we take communion, I'm going to ask you to examine yourself. But we also want to look forward to the marriage feast of the Lamb that we will one day sit and have with Him. And that's what communion is. It is an image, it's a foreshadowing of the feast that we're going to, serve, we're going to have with Christ when He comes back for us.